Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. Scott Galloway was once described by the New York Times as the Howard Stern of the business world, a successful entrepreneur, NYU professor, author of several books, including his latest, Adrift, America in a Hundred Charts, podcaster and commentator. Galloway has much to say about business and tech and everything else from politics and the direction of the country to masculinity, sex and fatherhood. And somehow he ties it all together. Galloway is in all things authentic and revealing and interesting, as you can hear in this conversation. Scott Galloway, it is good to see you. I've been listening to you, and anybody who listens to you gleans a little of your story along the way. But it is one hell of a story, and I wanted to, uh, before we talk about our country, I want to talk about you. Hmm. Uh, so welcome. Thanks for that. Good to see you. Your folks were immigrants and had interesting stories of their own. Tell me about them. That's a generous question. First off, I'm a, I'm a big fan, David. This was Thank like you. a hard yes, and I was really excited. Yeah, the best decision I ever made was to be born in the U.S., and that's because my parents have what is the secret sauce of, a, of American prosperity, and that is they were willing to take risks and moved to the U.S. And uh, these were enormous risks. They, and quite frankly, they were a little bit selfish. My father was in the Royal Navy in Scotland repairing aircraft and was a frogman and sending money home to his uh, mother so he could immigrate to America, got an honorable discharge at the age of 19, lied at 17 to join the Royal Navy, came home, found that his mother had spent all the money on whiskey and cigarettes and claimed that what was she supposed to do? She was bored. So we borrowed money from an uncle and got on a steamship. My mom lost both her parents when they were in their 50s. Her two younger sisters were in an orphanage and said, I want a better life. Both of them came to Canada, hated the weather, and read in a newspaper that the best weather in North America was in San Diego. And so seven months pregnant, loaded up their Austin Mini Metro, drove across the U.S., and I was born in San Diego. And being born, you know, being born in California in the 60s, you know, it's so easy to credit your, you know, character and grit for your success. But then as I've gotten older, I realized that being born a white heterosexual male in San Diego in, in 1964 was hitting the lottery. Mm-hmm. I got to go to UCLA and Berkeley for free. Let me slow you, let me, let me slow you down because sure. I don't want, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. We, we, I want to talk about what happened for you because of those state universities, because it's relevant to the discussion we should be having today. And you cover some of it in your uh, book, Adrift, uh, about what's happening in higher education. But your folks came over here and risked a lot to get here. But it wasn't a happy 
situation. And it was something, I was struck by something that you wrote, which is that your dad had a terrible relationship with money, Mm -hmm. which struck me as really unusual because people associate you with your mastery of all of that and your understanding of finance and so on. But tell me about that and how that impacted your family. Well, I think I live the way that 99% of the world lives. And that is, I had this ghost following me around, especially me and my mom, after my dad left, that uh, whispering in our ear, we weren't worthy because we didn't have money. You know, it was just incredibly, you know, not only stressful, but sometimes humiliating. And well, why my, did he leave, Scott? Oh, you know, David, to be blunt, my father was handsome, had a strong jaw and a Scottish accent, which in 1970s California meant he could not only think with his dick, he could listen to it. Um, he, he uh, you know, my dad's been married and divorced four times and, you know, not what I would call, didn't have, he, he checked an instinctive box and in that he was better to his son than his father was to him. He was abused as a child, but wasn't especially good to my mom. Um, or me, and just you know, started his third marriage when he was still on a second. So a lot of infidelity, and you know, not not a great deal of kind of loyalty. So, but that wasn't the hard part about all of it. The hard part about it was money. You know, I'm um, me and my mom just didn't have enough money. I remember, I remember losing my jacket in the fifth grade and just being horrified because I was going to have to go home and tell my mom I'd lost my jacket and jackets cost $34 from JCPenney's. I remember this. And we just didn't have the money. And I think the majority of the world, and unfortunately too many Americans live this way, and it's scarring. You can't focus on school. You can't focus on your relationships. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, the, the wonderful thing is that even though we didn't have a lot of money, America loved us. America gave me free education. It gave my mom welfare when she needed it. I've always said, I'm a product of big government, you know, and I'm not humble. I'm, I'm in the top 1%. I think I'm remarkably talented and I work hard. But to be in the top 1% globally puts you in a room with 75 million other people. And I have a much better life than the top 75 million people on this planet. And the reason why I've accelerated is because of the generosity of America that that especially when I grew up, loved unremarkable people. And I, I I worry that we're falling out of love with unremarkable people. So, you know, my mom and I, <laughs> whether it was welfare, Pell Grants, uh, an economic system that rewarded entrepreneurs, you know, America loved us. And th- that's my fear. What's interesting is, uh, just from what I've read and what I hear, you are a remarkable person, but you weren't an obviously remarkable person then. When you were a kid, you weren't a stellar student. Uh, you weren't particularly popular. I guess you ran for class president three times and lost. Yeah. You should have gotten a political consultant. And, you, uh, you know, you became remarkable because of opportunities that you got, but you also overcame. You've talked a lot about fatherhood and masculinity and the need for men to live up to their obligations. I presume that's a that's an outgrowth of your own experience. Yeah, but to be clear, I've had more wind in my back than wind in my face. And uh, keep in mind, when I applied to UCLA, it had a 76% admissions rate. I applied in 1982. And I was one of the 24% that didn't get in. Yeah, I know. I read and, that, yes. And But they had something called an appeal process. And the truth has a nice ring to it. I said, I'm installing shelving, raised by a single mother who's a secretary. And they let me in. 
And I rewarded that faith and generosity with a 2.27 GPA at a UCLA. And then what did Berkeley do? Let me in for graduate school. And then I finally got my act together. And I'm going to flex right now because I'm a narcissist and an egomaniac. I'm going to get four. I've given $20 million to UCLA and Berkeley over the last five years. And my lesson here is nobody, no institution can predict greatness at the age of 17. And so the key is you want to make, society wants to make as many bets as possible. They want to put as many chips down as possible. Because if society and colleges now looked at me back then, they wouldn't have made the same bet. Yeah. And the bet then was not trying to identify the children or rich kids or the freakishly remarkable who have incredible opportunities now, but they made a lot of bets on a lot of unremarkable people. Because I got my act together later in life. I don't know when you got your act together, but for me, it was later in life. You're assuming I got my act together, but yes. <laughs> Word is. The experience at Berkeley, you, you spent a, a, some time at, on Wall Street mm -hmm. at Morgan Stanley, and then you went to, which was by all accounts a lot of fun, but not terribly productive. But then you went to graduate school, and you met a professor who kind of shaped your, your focus, uh, yeah. gave you a talk about that. Like most people, I would describe to most people, and now I teach at a business school, I would describe the majority of my students or people go to elite business schools as the elite but the aimless. The reason you go to business school is you don't really know what you want to do. Otherwise, you would probably just be doing it because most of the kids who come to business school are, are remarkably talented. They're just not entirely sure what they want to do. And all I knew about investment banking was I didn't want to do it after spending two years in it. And I took a class with a, a professor named David Ocker who was talking about brands and how the color yellow and on all this heavy moving equipment left in Germany created these positive associations around America and Europe. And I just thought, I just want to do this. And I started a brand strategy firm in my second year and ultimately David ended up joining and it was a firm called Profit that's still around. That's about 400 people. Um, and I also was smart enough to recognize that I didn't work well in what has been the greatest wealth creating platform in history and that is a US corporation. I just wasn't good at why, it. Why is that? Too insecure. Was, oh, is that right? Yeah. I, I couldn't, you know, people went into a conference room and I assumed they were talking about me. I, I, I was too impatient. If I thought someone wasn't as smart as me but made more money, it, it drove me crazy. I needed access to all information. I, people romanticize entrepreneurship. I'm an entrepreneur because of a defense mechanism. And that is, if you kids come to me all the time in my office hours, and they want to, they don't want to talk about brand strategy or digital marketing. They want to talk about career choices, and they say, "Well, I got an offer from Google, and I'm thinking about starting a company." I'm like, "Don't be crazy. Go to work for Google. If you have the skills to navigate an organization or a platform, I can't even imagine the skills that you must have had to navigate the White House and the government. But if you have the skills to navigate a U.S. corporation, to be patient, to put up with the BS and the administrative complexity, they're incredible ways to get rich slowly." And so what I advise people is don't, under, don't underestimate the power of the corporation and the platform and don't overestimate or over-romanticize entrepreneurship. Most people go into entrepreneurship out of a defense mechanism because they, they don't have access or the skills to access U.S. corporations. And that was me. Yeah. There is something to, I mean, I ran my own business for 25 years. There's something to being the master of your own fate, though. There's something to having to answer only to yourself and your colleagues and navigate the, the world out there as a group uh, rather than dealing with uh, layers and layers and layers of people. But uh, you, this, this company that you began in graduate school, I guess, uh, so you, your first project, I guess, with Yacht was Yamaha Motorcycles. What did you guys do? Because this was sort of the test case for profit. Yeah. Tell me what the exercise was. 
they came to Berkeley and said, we need some students to do a project on the youth market for Yamaha Motors. And I said, we want to do this the right way. I'm starting a brand strategy firm. Um, uh, and they said, okay, write a proposal. And I wrote a proposal and I asked for a quarter of a million dollars because McKinsey, I heard, charged 500000 so I'll charge half as much. And submitted a proposal. My, I remember my mom proofing the proposal. Didn't hear back from them. And, you know, I thought that didn't work. And then opened the mailbox at my apartment in Rockridge. I was paying $280 a month. And there was a a check for $62,500 from Yamaha Motors, which was the first installment. And I remember looking around thinking, I may have just committed a crime. I, I was... <laughs> and the the thing that I've always said to entrepreneurs is just be mindful that we all feel like we're frauds. Uh, ask for the business and then... And then, you know, do your best to do a great job and create evangelists. But the company, uh, I was there 10 years and then sold my shares to Dentsu. But it was essentially a brand strategy firm. And um, you, you've run a services company, right? Yes. And I found, I got out of it. I find that running a services company as a young woman or a young man's game, that the constant traveling, the constant yeah. being on someone else's calendar, it really is unless you're just so incredibly passionate about that domain, you should get out of it by the time you're in your 40s or you have a family because I found it just very taxing physically and emotionally. Well, I did 150, 150 political campaigns and oh, those God. have a rhythm and pace all their own. Yeah. So yes, it was hard. It was hard. You know, I, I so appreciate you talking about family and fatherhood uh, because um, – my family sacrificed a lot. My kids sacrificed a lot when I was young in this business because it was so demanding and I was on the road so much. And if I could do one thing differently in my life, I would do that differently because it's, it, it, it has, as you were impacted by what your father couldn't, couldn't give you, I'm sure my kids were as well. And we're good and we were close and my grandkids are great, but that was a sacrifice. You got into other businesses. Uh, some were successful, some less so. You got into venture capital. Some of the things you did were successful, some less so. How did you deal with failure? Success, it's fun to open up the $62,000 check. How did you deal with uh, failure, especially when you got more prominent mm -hmm. in your field and things didn't go the way that you had planned? Well, as you get older, you try to you kind of reverse engineer to why you why you've been successful. First for me, it was irrational passion for my well-being of my mother. I think everybody that's successful has someone in their life who is irrationally passionate about their well-being. Two was being born in America. But the third is I'm really good at failure. I've been single and an entrepreneur most of my life, so I've endured a lot of rejection. You mentioned I ran for sophomore, junior, senior class president, lost all of them, and then based on that, decided to run for student body president where I went on to <laughs> wait for it lose. And I've had businesses fail. I've had a company go bankrupt. And every time I got up, I mourned for a little bit, and then I tried again. And I think that's the key to success. They're, they're, people think success is up and to the right. No, it's not. Show me, a, show me anyone who's really successful. I'm going to show you several moments where they really screwed up. I mean, I've been beamed in the face professionally and personally. And the key to my success has been that I mourn and then I move on. In um, America, I'm, I've started nine businesses. I'm kind of three, four, and two. Europe wouldn't tolerate my failure. And we say America embraces failure. It doesn't embrace it. That's BS, but it tolerates it. 
And as long as you're a good person and as long as you treat people well or you try to be, you can find other businesses and other people willing to back you. And the wonderful thing about America is, you know, you can move to Vegas and become a blackjack dealer and have a nice life. You know, we're the land of second chances. Bankruptcy is a wonderful thing in America. And that is, and it's really unique to America. And that is if a business is failing, but there's some value there, you can declare bankruptcy, the equity gets wiped out. But they give the the company and the people and the assets a second shot, and that that is a wonderful thing. We're the land of we're the land of second chances. So I've had a lot of a lot of disappointment professionally and personally, like most people. But rejection and my ability to endure it is absolutely core to 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 the you know the modest success I've recognized. I meant to get to it before when we were talking about your experience at Berkeley and UCLA. You talk about in your book how little it cost you to get that education that was foundational to your success. And you also chart what's happened to the cost of higher education. Even students who go to state schools now leave with significant debt. And, uh, you know, I've watched with interest what's happened at the University of California because it was the crown jewel. When Mm -hmm. you were there, it was the crown jewel of state university systems. It seems in a world in which education is increasingly important to financial success or financial security, it seems like an extraordinarily short-sighted move to essentially block a whole class of people out of that opportunity. I, I think it's morally corrupt. If, if we had a pill that made you less likely to be depressed, less likely to be obese, more likely to get married, more likely to stay married, less likely to have a heart attack less likely to suffer from severe depression. Would you hoard that drug? That drug is called higher education. And for all of the snarky comments about you don't need college, that's mostly fomented by people who don't have access to it and are resentful of a system that no longer uh, creates enough freshman seats for our growing population. It used to be one out of three jobs needed a college degree. Now it's two out of three. And uh, effectively, uh, something that infects America, and I'd be curious if you agree with this, is this nimbious rejectionist culture, where once I have a college degree, I like that it's harder to get into my school. It makes my degree more prestigious. It makes the faculty feel more proud of themselves. Once I have a house, once I own a house, I'm going to show up to the local review board and decide, come up with thoughtful reasons why we shouldn't approve new permits for new housing. Once I have a successful tech company, I'm going to start giving money to politicians and weaponize government and make it more difficult for companies emerging companies to come out, despite the fact I might be abusing my monopoly power. And in public education, we've decided, the leadership and academics have decided that we're Birkenbacks, not public servants. And in my opinion, any institution that sits on an endowment that's the GDP of a Central American nation, but doesn't want to grow, Harvard sits on a $54 billion GDP, except, but its freshman class is 1,500 people. That's ridiculous. It could be 15,000. And and it, it would be no damage to the brand. They have the resources, but we decide no. The faculty, and the, uh, you know what we do when we announce every year at NYU that our admissions rates have, our rejection rates have gone from eighty percent to eighty five percent. We stand up and we applaud. Mm-hmm. We stand up and we applaud. Is that what America is about? Rejecting people, taking good kids, and not giving them the same opportunities we had. So I think it's morally corrupt. The costs are a whole different talk show. The Rolexification the explosion and administrative bloat. But uh, higher education yeah. is a remarkable, it, it changed my life. And the fact yeah. that we pulled up the drawbridge behind many of us is just full stop morally corrupt. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. We've seen this shift, and we're going to talk about a couple of aspects of this because you've been talking about a couple of aspects of this. One of the shifts is that the base of the Republican Party has become more people who don't have college degrees and who feel like they've been dealt out of the game and have been let down by the financial crisis, by the devastation that trade brought to some communities and so on, and now have become very strongly sort of populist right. And then you have Democrats who aggregate in these uh, metropolitan areas and I think still have the gene of wanting to help, but it comes in a kind of cloaked in a kind of Margaret Mead package where we're here to help you be like us. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it's read. And, you know, you write in your book, and it's relative to taxes and our economic system as it exists today, that we value, we value wealth over, over sweat. You say, I usually say value wealth over work, probably unfair to the wealthy. But all of that seems like a huge political problem, huge problem for our country, huge problem for coherence. And I do think that there is a problem where people may want to help others. But there is an element of disdain. It's you work with your back, you work with your hands. Mm-hmm. You're lesser than us, but if you stick with it, maybe you can be like us. And I think it's off-putting because there's an element of disrespect associated with that. So a lot there, but I always think, how do you diagnose the underlying cancer before you figure out the treatment plan? And if I were to reverse engineer what I think really ails America, ground zero for that would be that for the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at the age of 30. That's the ultimate agreement any society has, is that if you play by the rules and you're a good person and you're a little bit lucky, your kid's going to do better than you. And for the first time in our nation's history, that's not true. 
And then you talk about elite colleges, which is still probably the widest on-ramp into a middle-class or upper-income life on a risk-adjusted basis. And we, we've done we made a lot of progress in some areas. Race-based affirmative action was a wonderful thing. And 40 years ago, there were, I'm sorry, 60 years ago, there were 14 blacks at Princeton, Yale, and Harvard. Uh, this year, 51% of Harvard's freshman class is non-white. But the dark side to that is we've replaced, we've now, it's all about money. 70% Class of, with race, race with class. Yeah. All we've done is reshuffle the elites. 70% mm -hmm. of the parents of those non-whites are married, upper income. And so we've essentially decided that we're just reshuffling the elites and we're not expanding freshman class sizes and again, engaging in this, in this nimbus. But I, I, I understand the resentment. And then, and then we get, I don't want to say unfairly targeted, but what is it? 98% of Harvard's faculty identify as, as Democrats. If, if we don't, we don't like to talk about this. The group, the demographic that's under indexing the most in college is white males from red states mm -hmm. because I, I don't want to say they've given up, but they've, they don't feel like it's hospitable to them. They don't get any help. And if you look at the data, if you really look at the data, the person, the, the demographic that has fallen furthest fastest in America is young men. Yeah. And there's no empathy for them, even the way we talk about them. We talk about them in terms of accountability and pulling themselves by the bootstraps. And when we talked about the very real problems facing women and non-whites, we talk about it as a societal issue that warrants investment. And higher education uh, kind of epitomizes that sort of elitism and fomenting resentment among people who, who you know, decide, okay, all of a sudden we've decided like college and science is the enemy. It's really unproductive. It's dangerous in a world in which science is making such progress that a lot of the problems that we face can yield to scientific discovery. Yeah. I mean, look at how the pandemic finally was brought to heal uh, because of the mRNA vaccines. But uh, I do think that technical training, because so, so much of industry today relies on fairly technical kind of machinery, mm -hmm. uh, that te technical training is something that, and vocational training is something that we should prize more than we do, because it's also an avenue to good middle-class lives. David, what happened to wood shop and metal shop and auto shop? We knew that guy. Remember that guy that wasn't cut out for college? And there were a few women, but it was mostly guys. But they knew how to fix a car. And guess what? Right. They could get a good job. Guess what? Right. They, they could go to a construction site. They had the skills I never had. And they could make 22 bucks an hour, maybe join a union and build a middle-class life that worked. Now, now what, is, what does that guy do? So we talk about the anger and the sense of estrangement. And that isn't just because of what's happened in the economy. And I want to sound like a Luddite, especially not with you. But uh, the other element of technology and the sort of exponential growth of technology has to do with the internet and with social media and the model of social media, as you write about, and I talk about all the time, you know, that we have misplaced incentives and the incentives encourage uh, estrangement, anger, outrage, because that's what keeps people online uh, to, and if you're online, you're looking at advertising. Uh, it's the business model of these social media platforms. It's also the business model of a lot of politicians now who have mm -hmm. sort of mirrored uh, social media. And you're, you know, you're so deeply uh, enmeshed in this in this field, uh, and you've studied it so so deeply. What can we do? What can we do as a society 
to because it is we are basically buried in our silos by algorithms, and mm-hmm. everybody outside our silos are alien enemies, mm-hmm. uh, dangerous, and we're seeing it play out in this election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Anytime you convert one substance to another for economic benefit, there's going to be externalities. When you convert coal to electricity, you have carbon. When you convert plant-based calories to meat-based calories, you have methane and deforestation. And I still don't think those are the most dangerous externalities. I think the most dangerous externality in our society is when you convert attention to advertising to shareholder value, um, you create polarization and rage. Because the easiest way to keep someone glued to their phone is to provide them content that enrages or engages them, confirms their conspiratorial beliefs, mRNA alters your DNA, tells them the election has been stolen, and figures out this really pisses you off or confirms your attitudes and keeps you glued to your phone. And the result is um, uh, an America that has lost the truth. And that truth is that Americans will never have greater allies than other Americans. And we have lost that truth. And the result is we can't even begin to address climate change. We can't even begin to address income inequality. We can't even begin to address deforestation uh, because we don't like each other and we don't get along. So what do you do about it? I think there's a lot we can do about it. And I think the illusion of complexity fomented by big tech is nothing but jazz hands and a weapon of mass distraction. Uh, First is the algebra of deterrence. We need to have carve outs from 230. When we decided that sex trafficking was no longer permissible or tolerable online, it went away because all of a sudden these organizations were liable for content that might result in sex trafficking. If we were to remove, have carve-outs around um, health elections, where if you're spreading misinformation around uh, a vaccine and you knew it was wrong, but you decided to spread that information anyways, and you got hit hard. I mean, look at Dominion and Fox and News Corp. That was a dumpster fire compared to the nuclear mushroom cloud of what took place on Facebook before the election. But it's not a problem for Facebook because we've decided they're a nascent technology from Section 230 in 1997. We could age gate social media. There was no reason for a 14-year-old girl to be on Instagram. Meta begins from a place of perversion. Let me have algorithms that encourage <laughs> pre-teen teenage girls to pose in provocative decisions positions with provocative clothing such that strange men and their colleagues can evaluate them around the world. That's just bottom line perverted. Let me send pictures of nooses, pills, and razors to a 14-year-old girl in the UK whose algorithms have picked up. She's in the midst of suicidal ideation, and the way to keep her glued to her phone is to send her images of self-harm. Someone needs to go to jail. And until there's a perp walk, across some of these individuals who throw up their arms and say, it's just too complex to figure it out. You know, it, we kick one account off Twitter and f- somewhere between 30 and 60% of all election misinformation goes away, but they don't kick that person off of Twitter until 11 days before the new president is inaugurated. So there's a lot we can do. We should point out, to, I'm sure people who listen to this podcast are familiar with this debate, but Section 230, it uh, basically holds these platforms blameless indemnifies them against the content that they traffic in across their platform or that people traffic in across their platform because they claim they're not publishers and therefore they shouldn't be held liable. So so you're for stricter regulation, but you know better than anyone that one of the issues here is that these tech companies, these social media platforms have become the most lucrative and powerful companies in the world. And they leverage a lot of power in Washington. 
You know this better than I do, but my understanding is there are more lobbyists, full-time lobbyists working for just Amazon in D.C. than there are sitting U.S. senators. Yes. I, I meet with a lot of U.S. senators and I'll express frustration. I'm a big fan of Senator Klobuchar. I'm a big fan of antitrust. I think we need to oxygenate the economy. The best thing we could happen to the economy right now over the next 10 years would be to break up these companies and have a bunch of different, uh, more competitive, it'd be like lowering taxes on all of corporate America because they engage in monopoly and predatory pricing. And I like Senator Klobuchar's efforts around antitrust. And, I, and I'll ask her straight up, how come we're not making any progress? And she's like, Scott, we're outgunned. Yeah. I got a staff... I got a staff of 60 people, 12 can focus on this and most. I'm facing 800 incredibly well-educated, well-resourced lawyers just on this one issue. Yeah. So Now there's something to be outraged about. I don't know if it's Citizens United. I don't know how, I don't know how we fix it, but when I meet with actually people on both sides of the aisle, they're just like, we've been overrun. I mean, we literally, mm -hmm. we've literally these organizations, I would say other than, you know, the U.S. government and the CCP, I think the big techs, these individual organizations are more powerful than any entities on earth right now. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Let me ask you about something else that concerns me. And again, you, people should read your book, Adrift, because it's, a, it's called America in 100 Charts. And these charts are really, they're eye-opening and they're, they're, they're useful and, and, and important. But you talk about the fraying of the connective tissue between us as Americans. Talk about the impact of the, of the pandemic in that regard. First of all, I will say I... So, and you probably survived it quite well because of all you need to do is sit in front of a computer screen and you can make a living and you can be in a nice place with your family. Yeah. It was not, not a bad experience. A lot of people, a lot of Americans, particularly the ones we were talking about before who haven't been on the ride up with the economy, mm -hmm. uh, didn't have that experience. But now you have this, and you talked about this with Kai, this notion that kids don't, young people, they're like, I'm not working in an office. I'm not working in an office. And I, boy, I'll tell you something. There's something to be said for community and culture that you can't get this way over these computer screens. We're, at a basic level, we're mammals. The worst thing you can do to a dog is to leave it at home alone all day. Orcas go crazy when they're separated from their family. It's the, the worst thing you could do in, in you know, societies was to expunge the person or, or you know, set them out on their own. And when we're not around each other, we not only are less mentally healthy, less physically fit, uh, we're less empathetic. You, when you're not standing behind the single mother and her three kids to get popcorn at the movies, when you don't see the homeless veteran on the off-ramp on your way to work, when you don't uh, hang out with someone who's trans at, at your company and realize that they're kind of facing the same issues you're facing, 
when you don't engage in national service, you don't serve in the same uniform ever, we lose empathy and understanding for each other. And where do we have this connective tissue? Where do we find out that these people in societies, people who live around immigrants are more sympathetic to immigrants. People start demonizing, resenting immigrants when they don't live around them. Uh, the number of teenage kids that see their friends every day has been cut in half, but it's it's down 50%. And the pandemic accelerated all of this. And unfortunately, the pandemic, and this is the dirty secret, if you're in the top 1% and not obese, you were living your life. I lived my best life during the pandemic. Yeah, I did as well. I'm in the information economy. I could go into my studio, do a virtual speaking gig, write. Uh, the pandemic for me meant more time with my family, more time with Netflix, and my yes. stocks exploded upward. Right. And it was a bad thing because stop, stop, it hurts so good. And am I, am I going to vote for additional taxes to fund the CDC to ensure we don't have a pandemic again? Yeah, one startling chart of yours was the comparison in what we invest in the CDC and what we invest in the Pentagon because the pandemic killed more people, as you point out, than all the wars combined that we've been involved in as a country. The worst thing in terms of our ability to fight the pandemic was that it wasn't a person with different colored skin worshiping a different religion. If this had been a foreign enemy that worshiped a different God and had different colored skin, the response, the unified response we would have had to this thing would have been remarkable. And some people will argue, but we did have a pretty good response or as good as it was anywhere. But I don't see what exactly World War II, you know, the defining moment of the 20th century we all kind of went all in on that. And I, my favorite image, I have this image of uh, this, this landing craft that's been colorized, uh, uh, getting onto Omaha Beach, average age 26, average wages on inflation-adjusted basis, 850 bucks. And I got to think none of them had a, any, any idea who was a Republican or Democrat. Right. All they could think about is how do I save him and how does he save me and how do we get the mission done? When do Americans feel that now? And then when do young people learn? When do they meet mates, friends, uh, other business partners when they're not going into work any longer, which I think is not only a disaster for young people, I think it's especially acute for young men who quite frankly just need more guardrails and mature later in life. So where, where at the end of the day as mammals and Americans do we come together to be happy and find connective tissue and find common ground now? We're not going to work. We're not going to the mall. You know, we're, not going to, we're not going to movies. Where, where does this happen? Yeah. No, listen, this is my uh, concern. By the way, I, I agree with you about national service uh, and also about why we, we, we had more cohesion after World War II, because you had those mostly young men, but also it was an all-hands-on-deck all kind of thing because you had the Rosie the Riveters and everyone right. felt invested in that. So there was something bigger that linked us together than the things that separated us. On the immigration issue, I got to tell you this story. I, there was a, we did a focus group for my uh, Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and it was downstate Illinois. And the moderator was asking about immigration. And uh, there was very strong feeling about immigration in this community, mostly white working class. That was the whole focus group. And the moderator said, well, do any of you know anyone who's hired an immigrant? And guy raises his hand and says, oh, I do. And the guy had been the most outspoken voice in the room. And the miners said, well, why, why did you hire them? And he said, well, they're the hardest working people I could find. Mm -hmm. And they were doing jobs other people didn't even want to do. 
and they were doing it. They worked their asses off. And it's like, did not see the sort of paradox in what, what he was talking about. But this issue of immigration is another one that you talk about. When we turn our back on immigration, and we're both sons of immigrants, when we talk our, uh, turn our back on immigration, we're basically signing a death knell for our economy uh, because uh, we're not growing at the pace we need to be growing. A lot of the energy in our economy comes from people like your parents and my father who came to try and find a better future and were willing to work for it and were invested in that sense of America as a place where you could do it. So um, it warranted uh, note in your book, Adrift, and it's worrisome. I mean, the data is just clear here, whether it's trying to bring inflation down or less likely people less likely to commit a crime and about 10 times more likely to start a business. 20% of the NASDAQ by market capitalization is not only run by immigrants, it's run by first first generation immigrants from India. Yes. So, okay, do you want more job growth? Do you want more a broader tax base? Do you want lower crime? Okay, immigration. And that's not to say, I'm not, I'm not advocating for open borders, but when someone is willing, if you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and every year, you got the number one draft choice. You, every number one player on every college team wanted to come play for you. Would you say, no, we don't want that? That's what America is. America gets the number one draft pick from every country in the world, and we've decided we don't want them. It, yeah. makes, it makes absolutely no sense. And, and they create jobs. They create shareholder value. And I don't care if you're talking about Google or, or, or Microsoft or MasterCard or Adobe, you're talking about companies that were either founded by immigrants or the, or the children of immigrants. And so to, 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 to just put our foot on the neck or on the oxygen line of economic growth, I, I'm not even going to get into the moral arguments around that or would say these platitudes of our nation of immigrants. America is about capitalism and growth. It's a wonderful thing. And if you want to maintain GDP growth, if you want to maintain prosperity, if you want to have a tax base, you got to have a really, why on earth would you not, would you not draft every Tom Brady in the world? And that's what we're doing right now. We're saying, no, Tom, we don't want you. Yeah. Speaking of taxes, you also have had a lot to say about that. And you already certified and when you talked about your donation to Berkeley and so on, uh, you've done well, but you think I think there's ample evidence to support the tax system has been gamed by the people who least need to game it. It's strange. They, they, the common mythology or belief is that lower middle income people have really been screwed by our tax code. And the reality is, if you look at consumption taxes and on the supply side or uh, what they have to pay for, energy, housing, education, it has gotten harder. But in terms of the tax code itself, which has gone from you know 40 pages to 400 or 400 to 4,000. 4, yeah, that's right. Four hundred, four thousand. Who it's really screwed are what I call the workhorses, and that is dad's a chiropractor, mom's a partner at a law firm. They've killed it, worked hard, got the right certification, worked really hard, very successful, and they make eight hundred thousand dollars a year. But they have to live in a blue state in an urban center to maintain that sort of living, and they're paying effectively, most likely about fifty percent taxes. But once they get, if they can go to five million, if they can get into the point one percent. And they can get the majority of their income, as I do, from investments. Their tax rate plummets. It plummets. And so it's actually the 95th to the 99th are actually the ones that have been hurt most by our tax code. It's once you make the jump to light speed 
at the point, the number of billionaires in America has quintupled. It's gone from 500 to 2,500 in the last 10 years. And most of it, I would argue, is tax policy because they get to, I'm very public about this. My effective tax rate the last 10 years has been 17%. And, you know, I, I, I try to compensate for that by giving a lot of money away. But at the end of the day, should wealthy people dictate what nonprofits thrive? Are we, are we going to have a society that's dependent upon the generosity of the 0.1%? So we need, we need a progressive tax structure, full stop. And it is progressive, and it gets highly progressive into the 90s to the workhorses, and then it absolutely plummets once we get to the super rich. Yeah, you've also pointed out we also actually need an internal revenue service to enforce these laws, and instead we are decimating it because of the politics uh, surrounding it. So um, we, we actually make money by investing in the Internal Revenue Service by compelling people at the upper reaches to pay their fair share. So the code needs to change, but enforcement needs to be done as well. The greatest ROI in the government, if you give the IRS a dollar, they'll give you 12 back. And it's not harassing people. It's enforcing the tax code because this is where we are now. If you can, if you can navigate by starlight, you don't want GPS. You want to run boat races at night. And this is what the exceptionally wealthy have done. They've made the tax code so increasingly complex that unless you have money or a tax department of 400 people at GE or Apple, you you want it complex because then you end up FedEx, Nike, or Amazon, five of the Fortune 100 didn't pay any taxes last year. You end up with 1202. If I start a company and it becomes worth more than you know, tape becomes worth 10, the first 10 million back to me or the investors is tax-free. Does that make sense? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so the, the, the ability, and I have a, a small cadre of incredibly educated, smart people doing nothing but helping me navigate the tax code and lower my tax rate. And people say, well, Scott, if it's so terrible to send a check to the government, I'm not going to disarm unilaterally. I'm going to pay as little tax as I legally can. And so will almost all wealthy people. But it's our job to elect people to have – I mean, it comes down to this. Do we want a progressive tax rate? And all the money and all the gains have been at the top. So you're just going to have deficits, poor infrastructure, uh, resentment, insurrection if you don't have an equitable tax structure. It, no wonder people are angry. Speaking of which, I can't let you go. You've done some political prognostications lately, including the idea that Donald Trump will not be on the ballot in November because he will cut a deal with the Department of Justice to stay out of prison and not run. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. And it's, I don't understand. I, I, I don't think I have insight into real insight into politics. What I'd like to think I have insight into is wealthy men who are older. And if you look at the four jurisdictions where I think he's been charged, their average conviction rate ranges between a low of 72% and a high of 92 and even you say, well, this is special, and you might end up with a forever Trumper on the jury, cut those conviction rates in half. It means there's about an 80% chance one of these convictions is going to stick. He's not an ideologue. People say, well, he never gives up. He gives up all the time. He walked away from casinos, his university, his vodka, his airlines. He has no fidelity to any ideals or the Republican Party. Uh, people say, well, how could you do a deal? There's omnibus deals across jurisdictions all the time. And I just think that I think when it becomes increasingly likely, which I believe that he's going to lose, somebody's going to do the math and sit him down and go, you sure you don't want to just be a billionaire and playing golf all the time? 
And I think the be- and I think these jurisdictions, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this thesis, will decide that the best thing for the country is to have some sort of plea deal where he admits to something, he drops out of the race, he does house arrest, doesn't do time, and he just goes back to being a billionaire because any any time in jail for an obese 77-year-old is effectively a death sentence. And I think he's going to do the math. And if the math shapes up the way I think it will, I think a plea deal has interest and benefits for every party. The case you make is logical. The fact is that Trump has spent his whole life, you're right, he walked away from those business teams. This is something different. I think he thinks his only way to escape culpability is to win. Yeah, is to win. Is to win. I think it's it's he's desperate now to win. Hey, la- the last thing I want to ask you is you do these two wonderful podcasts, uh, Pivot with the great Kara Swisher and your own Professor G show. You teach at NYU. Uh, you write. You write books. You write columns. You speak. I'm sure you still have business interests. What is the brand? What What is your brand? You're a branding expert. How would you describe your brand? I was trying to figure it out when I was thinking about getting my arms around all of you. How do you describe yourself? That's a generous question. I, I think everyone should try and come up with three values or adjectives to use as their North Star. For some people, it's religion. Uh, for me, it's simple. I want to be known as a generous person. I want to be known as a father. And I want to be known as a citizen. All right, brother. Well, you've been generous to me, and I appreciate that. It's great chatting with you, and I urge everyone to listen to you when, whenever you get a chance, because the one thing Scott doesn't do is equivocate. He, Whatever he's thinking, he lets you know, and it's usually grounded in some data and reflection. So always worthwhile. Great to be with you. David, thanks so much for your good work. I'm, I mean this. You're someone I look up to, and as I get older and I realize the importance of friendship, I really do hope that you'll look me up when you're in New York and London. I would love to spend some time with you. I look forward to it. I will do it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.